Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's fiction category manager, and this is a podcast about books and the brilliant people who read them and write them. Chris Hammer is a journalist turned novelist who spent three decades working with major Australian papers as a political correspondent and editor, as well as a TV reporter uh, for SBS, which saw him filing stories from every corner of the globe. His first novel, Scrublands, came out in 2018. It immediately established Chris as a bestseller here and abroad. Last year, he published a second novel, Silver, bringing back the troubled journalist Martin Skarsden and his partner, Mandalay Blonde. Now, Martin and Mandy are back in the new thriller, Trust. Chris, welcome to the Booktopia podcast. Uh, ben, thank you so much for having me on. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Uh, Chris, your star is continuing to rise. Uh, Scrublands and Silver continue to reach more and more readers around the world. And I've got to congratulate you on trust. Uh, you're really raising the stakes in a big way in this new novel. What can readers expect? Well, it's once again, it's Martin Skarsden and Mandalay Blonde. So it's a continuation on from Scrublands and Silver. Uh, that said, it can absolutely be read as a standalone. I've been very happy a few people who have read it as a standalone without reading the other two books have said it works fine. Um, the only thing it's done is whetted their appetites to go back and read the first two. Uh, there, are, there are a few differences, and the big difference structurally, stylistically, is whereas the first two books are told very much from Martin's point of view, um, in trust, the points of view alternate between Martin and Mandy, um, and that has the effect of giving the book a lot more pace, mm. sort of shorter chapters, more going on. So it, it leans maybe a little bit more towards a thriller than a straight sort of crime uh, because there's a lot of action and there's a, a lot of danger. The other big uh, difference is... Um, it's not set in a small country town it's, and it's not set in a fictional town, it's set in Sydney, some sort of rather grim uh, post-COVID Sydney. Um, and there's plenty of crime, there's corruption, there's conspiracy, there's elites, there's, you know, a, as in the first two books, quite a few threads, but also in keeping with the first two books, there's a strong kind of emotional story there, a personal story. Um, and whereas in Scrublands and Silver, that was mostly about Martin, in Trust, it's mainly about Mandy. Yes. Oh, yeah, Mandy's perspective is really exciting to read. Uh, not only do you reveal to the reader all this secret history that's uh, been kept inside your character, uh, heavy stuff that Mandy hasn't yet disclosed to Martin, the man with whom she now lives and is raising a child. Uh, but we also get to take a look at the hero, Martin, uh, from the outside. So what was it like writing this other perspective? Well, it was quite, quite challenging. A, a few people have asked what's it like you know, to write a female character and a female perspective. And, of course, that has its challenges. But... More than that, Mandy isn't some sort of every woman. She's a particular character and she has her own fragilities and one of which is this kind of hidden, buried past. Um, so it was interesting getting 
inside her head, getting her perspective on things, and then playing that off against Martin's view of the world. Um, and I ended up really enjoying it. So, you know, I've, I reckon if I'm enjoying it and it's working for me, there's a pretty good chance it's going to work for readers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really deep interior journey that Mandy goes through. Uh, uh, you know, with her relationship with this embattled journo character, Martin, um, she, you know, it all comes down to the title of the novel. She kind of has to re-educate herself on who and how to trust. Um, having these alternating perspectives, um, Martin and Mandy, uh, you, you, they, they each get wound into their own quest for answers. Um, and as you, as you allude to, that, that also really changes the pace and feel for your writing uh, and brings a great deal more action um, to the fore. Uh, do you feel that you're changing and evolving your style as you develop the series? Look, I, I hope so. I, in the sense that I don't want to just write the same book over and over again. Sometimes you see that with authors. Um, and, you know, often maybe publishers are happy with that and readers are happy with that. You know, mm. they look forward to just kind of reading the same book every year yeah. over summer, you know, or a variation that of. Um, so the style has changed to an extent, but I really hope that not not so much that it would alienate any of the readers of like Scrublands and Silver, that, you know, they're just going to carry on and accept that and find it, find it new and fresh uh, rather than disconcerting. Um, and, I, and I'm pretty confident that's the case. Um, I do want to, as I, um, as I evolve as a writer, try new things. Um, maybe not with Martin and Mandy, maybe standalone books, whatever. But I, I think that's, for me, it's one of the joys of writing is to try out new stuff. And, you know, sometimes it's going to work better than other times, but that's, you know, that's all part of the journey. Yeah. And, and I can't, can, I can imagine, um, not having a fictionalized town, but actually, setting a novel in the heart of Sydney, um, this super well-known um, yep. metropolis is, is, a, is a challenge of its own. Uh, and and your, 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 your novels came onto the international stage because of their ability to capture atmosphere. And I feel like you're doing that again, just in a, in a completely different way. Uh, how, how, how was it writing about Sydney? So... Setting is very important, I think, in fiction and particularly in crime books. A lot of very good, effective crime books uh, do setting very well. I mean, you think of someone like you know, Anne Cleves and her Shetland books or Scandi Noir or, you know, Jane Harper and other Emma Viskich, really good Australian crime writers have got that setting down. Um, Sydney in the book is recognisable Sydney. There's a lot of, I guess, landmarks there. There's other ha people's ha homes and little cafes and whatever that don't actually exist, but are qu quite familiar. But if you think about books that are set in real cities, you know, London, New York, they're, they're often completely different sort of cities, the way they're described. So in trust, you, there's none of the tourist Sydney there's not the harbour and the bridge and the opera house and Bondo Beach and all of that. In fact, Martin is kind of finds it 
almost in those places inaccessible. You know, he gets glimpses every now and again of the harbour and it seems like a different world to him. It's not particularly gritty, but it is, there's a sense of a certain, um, I guess, grittiness to it because it's this post-COVID world where things aren't quite back to normal. And, of course, the, uh, the crimes and the violence that are starting to engulf Martin and Mandy, of course, um, shed a totally different light on the city from their point of view. It's become a, a rather dangerous and murky and shadowy place. Oh, yeah. You, you really have this acute perception of a, of a corrupt and money-hungry city and, and, and the different ways in which that ebbs and flows. Um, and you also communicate this sense of dread that outsiders have when inevitably they have to go to this mega city for one reason or another, how oppressive it can be to those who, who don't understand it, who aren't insiders. And also in the, in the case of Martin in particular, I feel like you're, you're tapping into this idea that even a dyed-in-the-wool urbanite, and Martin has, a, has an apartment in Surrey Hills, like he's a, he's a dyed-in-the-wool Sydney guy. Um, he, he can become an outsider just from being away from it all, and it can become alien to him once again. Um, so you're a Canberrian, um, and like me, you did your undergraduate out in Bathurst, country town. Yeah. Um, but then you worked at Fairfax for years, um, and you've travelled the world. So what's Hammer's view on uh, Australia's postcard metropolis? Because as, as you say, there's, there's, a, there's a tourist Sydney, and then there's another Sydney. Oh, look, I mean, I love Sydney. I've lived there a couple of times, not for, not for a long time. But I visit Sydney all the time. So this is, a, this is one of the reasons why it's set, say, in Sydney instead of Melbourne. Mm. Um, I love Melbourne. I just don't know it as well. I don't know the culture quite as well. So the the sort of the what team you're going for, what suburbs are located where sort of stuff is more hazy for me with Melbourne than in Sydney. Also, you know, one of the basic reasons this story is set in Sydney is because I said it's about elites and conspiracies and corruption and organised crime and stuff like that. So it's not a story that you could set in a little country town or on the out, in the outback or wherever, okay? It has to be in a city, and what better city in Australia for that sort of stuff than Sydney? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've got to call out one, one ingenious moment. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Martin uh, has to rendezvous with a, a, a journo that he, he is a former colleague, and they don't want anyone to be privy to their conversation. Um, and so they, they have a stroke of genius that they'll, they'll meet in the food court of Darling Harbour, which is the one place that no actual Sydney cider will ever be caught alive. I, I've got to hand <laughs> it to you, Chris. That, that's, that's really ingenious. I might use that. <laughs> Feel free. Yeah, every, every city has a, um, has a place like that where you're not going to get the locals hanging out. Um, I don't know, Melbourne, Melbourne might be Docklands. I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, I I want to know, Chris, are you a bit of a coffee snob or, or is that just a, a kind of a bitterness that you've infused into Martin's Garsman? No, look, I, I'm not a coffee snob. I definitely need a cup of coffee to get myself going in the morning. Um, there have been times when I've been travelling 
where I've just gone off coffee altogether. So out in the outback, you know, years ago, I just stopped. You know, reporting from China and places like that, I just drink tea because it's just, you're just going to get really bad in this cafe with condensed milk and whatever. So to that degree, I'm a, I'm a snob. But, hey, I live in Canberra, so, you know, not Carlton, so I can't get too snobby. <laughs> i I got to say, I, I think I've drunk about a gallon of the stuff reading this novel. This Martin's obsession for it uh, is addictive. <laughs> uh, part of that too is because he's a journo, when I, when I was first writing it, I didn't want him to be an alcoholic and always drinking because, you know, that was just too much of a cliche. Oh, fair enough. Um, I think it's also worth noting uh, this killer character, which um, readers will catch a glimpse of uh, just in the opening prologue. He's a, a very potent character with a distinctive style and smell. Uh, without um, spoiling anything... Uh, what what can you um, uh, give away about this killer? Well, he's he's got a very striking appearance. So he wears vintage three piece suits. He's got long hair that's oiled back with this stuff called California poppy that I think my grandfather used to wear. You know, so it was very popular in like I don't know the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties. So this guy is almost like a noir character that's been lifted out of, you know, somewhere back in the middle of last century. So he has a very distinctive look to him, but he's also got a, this weird kind of strangely laconic, laid-back, unflustered nature to him as well. So he's, he's something of a mystery man and... Martin and Mandy, and hopefully the reader, can't quite work out why he's doing what he's doing, what his motivations are. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a really striking character and um, someone who uh, really gets under your skin just from the first few pages. Um, Chris, three books in three years and an audience that is growing and growing. Uh, I can only imagine that the author thing is is starting to take over your life now. Um, how are you staying sane, and uh, what are your plans for ongoing world domination? <laughs> um, look, I, I'm absolutely loving the author thing. I think I've become quite addicted to it, to, to writing. So just like it doesn't feel quite, I don't feel quite right, I don't have a cup of coffee in the morning. I don't feel quite right unless I've done, you know, a little bit of work any on any given day, maybe just an hour or two, and that kind of sates the addiction for a little, little bit. Um, and I'm enjoying trying new things, which, uh, you know, seems to work well in trust. Fingers crossed, you know, that it will continue like that. Um, no, and I'm very much I'm embracing it. Lockdown has been interesting, I think, for authors. Um, mm. The first half of the year was fine because I was so far into trust and edits and that it wasn't that much different for me because I was just concentrating. Because once I, I'd finished it, you sort of emerge. Normally I'd be touring around a lot when the book comes out, which I quite enjoy because you get to meet readers, you get to meet people, you know, maybe other writers whatsoever. Um, I'm for fairly fortunate, though. I live in Canberra, so 
lockdown has kind of been and gone. It's very much open, say, compared to Melbourne. I'm looking forward. Most of my publicity is online, a, a, a virtual tour. Mm. Uh, um, compared to you know, actors and musicians, uh, we writers are you know, so well off. Um, also, I think established writers are more fortunate this year. I think it'll be a terrible year, very hard year to be a debut author, simply because I, I think there's just a lot of really good books, big books coming out anyway this year. Um, that's just how the sort of patterns have evolved. Um, and then you've had some books held over for, for later in the year. So um, it's a strange year, but, you know, I can hardly complain. Yeah, I, I wonder, um, not only the lockdown and, and the social distancing stuff, but just the, the torrent of, of bad news that has been beaming into our brains every day this year. Does that impact creativity, workflow, um, or or are you um, <laughs> are you hardened from from years as a journalist yourself that uh, you're able to press on? Um, I'm I'm able to press on to some extent, but I think it does get under your skin after mm. a while because it's not just you; it's how it's affecting the people around you. I mean, our our household is much more concentrated than it normally would be. People aren't away as much. Uh, my wife travels a lot, typically. I do as well. You know, we're both here. Um, you get worried about friends interstate, particularly friends overseas. And I, I know a few writers are having a hard time getting motivated. People will say to you, oh, well, you're a writer, this is a great time for you because you can just lock yourself away and write. You know, you're not like the rest of us. But it doesn't seem to work like that. Um, I think it has affected me a bit. Sometimes the motivation's a bit hard to be putting so much effort into, you know, fiction, making stuff up, having fun, you know, making entertainment. When there's a really serious things happening and people are confronting serious challenges in their lives. You know, business people who are struggling, frontline healthcare workers are turning up at work each day in, um, you know, risking their own health to help others. Um, so it can be a bit hard, I think, to get motivated at times. Yet on the other hand, I think um, writers and writers of fiction are, are providing a great service um, in this time, particularly in those places which are locked down both here and abroad, because books have you know, proven to be such a valuable sort of crutch for people or an escape for people. So, um, look, it's been a bit different, but once again, you know, nothing too serious. Yeah, this has certainly uh, shown me uh, everything that one needs to take, you know, not take for granted. Um, and, and good writing is, is, is one of those things, good books to come out and, and be printed and in, available in shops and those shops be open to the public and libraries be open to the public. That's, that's really important. Um, I want to I touch on the journalism stuff a bit more. Uh, you, the opening uh, of your novel, there's a kidnapping <laughs> uh, and you get the perspective of the person who was kidnapped uh, to a, you know, it's a, it's a classic kidnapping, uh, drugging, 
back of the car, down the highway, um, blind fog, the whole shebang. Uh, but you get the interior of this character, um, the fuzziness of mind from uh, the drugs, the, the feel of movement of the vehicle, the, the sense of unease, um, all of this interior stuff. I want to I touch on the journalism stuff because you know, th- this is a really classic scene in, in, in books and in television, but I've never read it done in such an interior and accurate way. You, you really touch into the, the feeling and the sights and the smells of this experience. Uh, you, you've, you've seen all kinds of traumatic things, I can only imagine, as a, as a correspondent. Is, is that, does that warm you up to, to write this kind of stuff? Um, I don't know. I, I, there seems to be an assumption sometimes when you get readers' questions at events that anything in your books has to be based on a real-life experience. Um, sometimes I think it works better if you haven't experienced that. So obviously, I've never been drugged and kidnapped. Um, I, I, was, I was drugged once, but um, it, that didn't really help <laughs> help describing what it was like because most of I can't remember. Um, so I think sometimes the force of the imagination is what really drives it. And in describing something, sometimes it, the imagined reality can be more powerful. What you want to convey is that sense of authenticity, you know, very similar to it. Um, and that's kind of more important than actually being completely technically accurate. That, that's my take anyway. It's kind of, kind of like my get out of jail card. Yeah, there's, there's another moment that really stuck with me, um, Chris, and, and that's when Martin uh, encounters someone's wife um, outside their house just when this, this man's been murdered uh, in the most... Uh, cruel and unusual way um it's a it's a hell of a murder scene but uh what you describe and and what martin sees uh is is the faraway look in in the wife's the, the now widow's eyes um and and this 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 standout um uh, kind of far away um way of talking that's that's something this this really really stood out for me so how do, how do you find those details uh and not not purely focus on the on the gore you know i think just as a general rule um i'm not talking about my own writing just writing in general violence suggested is often far more powerful uh, than violence described in detail mm. so 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 sometimes i know and having said that so that's a case where the violence suggested may be more powerful than the same scene described in all its horror. Having said that, of course, there are scenes in this book, Trust, that are pretty deep. The violence is pretty explicit, yes. put it that way. Um, so maybe what helps that work is the contrast. So if you've got, say, a book, um, a hypothetical book and it's got six scenes in it that involve violence and you describe all those six scenes in the same way, 
they're going to lose their power. You know, the reader's going to go, yeah, I've, I've read this before, I, you know, I've got this feeling before. So I think without upsetting the flow of the book or going overboard, if you can vary the tone or the description or the way you approach something, you know, in slightly different ways, it helps keep the pace, keeps it, keeps it fresh. Um, this book probably doesn't have as much humour in it, but and say Scrublands in particular, there's, there's kind of these moments of almost comic relief there. Uh, but again, if you do that, that can also take the pressure off and then you... Um, and then the dramatic scenes become all the more dramatic by contrast. I think trust is maybe a little bit more like a traditional thriller. I wouldn't I wouldn't describe it as that, but but a little bit more like it in in that the the pressure and the pace kind of ratchet up more, you know, as it goes along. So so by the second half of the book, there's a lot of momentum there. There's a lot of stuff happening. There's a crescendo. And not, yeah, and there's not really there's not really time to sort of flick the switch and say, okay, let's. Let me tell you a few jokes now. That's not that's not the way this book works. Uh, Chris, I've I've really enjoyed our time together. Um, before we wrap up, I, I want to um, call out a, a, a lovely thing you did for our blog. Uh, you, you share with us some of the most influential crime books um, that are on your shelf, uh, and there's some excellent stuff like Peter Temple and, and Raymond Chandler, Derbal McTiernan, and Michael Robotham. Uh, I, I wonder uh, who you've been reading at the moment, and uh, and what's uh, what's uh, what are you, what are you excited for? Um, I've read I've read a few international books that I won't be out for a while. I read a ton of French book that's coming out that was um, really good. I read um, Kate Mildenhall's The Mother Fault, which I think is a really she's got a really I think new and distinct voice. Mm. Um, that that's good. The Girl in the Mirror by Rose Carlyle too, which is a thriller, but it's it's kind of funny and light and entertaining. It's got a really and very very pacey. It's sort of like a book that doesn't quite take itself too seriously. And yeah, you know, I'm not selling it short there, but it, it is highly entertaining. So there's a, that's a couple of those I've just read recently. I've got this huge pile of books though to be read crime and otherwise so you know i'm hopefully i'll get to a beach at some point and just sit there and read um i hope you uh, don't have too much of a break chris will we be expecting a a new novel in 2021 look i hope so i'm kind of working towards that ben um hopefully it happens on the other hand you know, i start writing a book in never quite know where it's going to go and whether it's going to really come together and work. So I think my publishers, rather than bringing out, you know, a lower quality book, we go, okay, let's give ourselves some more time. But yeah, at this stage, I'm hoping to have another book out next, I guess this time next year. That would be very exciting. Until then, I'm just going to let you keep working <laughs> because you're doing <laughs> incredible stuff, Chris. I, I really thank you for your, uh, your time today. And uh, uh, if you're listening at home, uh, you can buy all the books we've mentioned, uh, including Trust by Chris Hammer from booktopia.com.au.
Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.